Hello and welcome to our Maritime Impact podcast series. I'm your host, Eric Nyhus, Director Environment for Maritime at DNB. In this episode, we'll be exploring the practical ramifications of the EU ETS and other regulations from the Fit for 55 package for the maritime industry. Drawing from our previous discussions, we have the privilege of speaking with an expert from the cruise sector. I'm very pleased to welcome Tom Strang, Senior Vice President, Maritime Affairs, Carnival Corporation, to the podcast. During our conversation, you'll discover and learn firsthand the concrete steps being taken by Carnival to meet requirements, the challenges the cruise sector still faces, and how these regulations are reshaping operations. We hope you enjoy the episode, and now on to the show. Tom, thanks for joining today. Navigating the intricacies of the EU ETS and all the other regulations within the EU Fit for 5 package, within the IMO, within local uh, bodies, etc., it's, it's no simple task. They all present a multifaceted landscape of regulations, and obviously that requires some thoughtful decision-making from your side, as well as thinking proactively about how you're going to Imp- how this is going to impact on your operations within the cruise industry. So specifically to you guys, uh, how, how do you think about the ETS in the broader sense? What kind of impact does it have for you? Well, is it only about cost impacts? Uh, is it about uh, the sheer complexity of compliance? Is it uh, the practical issues like shifting itineraries? How does all of this uh, come together in your mind? Eric, it's really nice to be here. Thanks very much to DMV for inviting me. And uh, I'm very pleased that you consider me an expert from the cruise sector. Uh, it's in, we're, we're facing an incredibly challenging um, period coming up as we begin to navigate our way through what is now becoming a little clearer in the regulatory space, particularly as you mentioned, the Fit for 55. Clearly, We've been on a decarbonization journey or a carbon reduction journey for some time. And for the first time, though, we're actually going to see a value placed on carbon with the ETS entering into force in January 2024. And obviously, as a cruise line that has a significant exposure in Europe, we've had to take a look at what this means, not just from a financial perspective, because there is a financial impact, clearly, but from an operational perspective and, you know, what are the changes that we could make to itineraries or should make to itineraries to ensure compliance, but at the same time still delivering those fantastic voyages, those fantastic guest experiences, which we're well known for and which we're all about. What I would say at the moment is, though, that, you know, as you, as you said, we've got the Fit for 55 package and the first of which is the ETS. But we've also got the debate going on at the IMO at the moment. We've already got a CII um, requirement that we're looking at, and that's already. So there's already a lot of work we've done to optimize our itineraries, our deployments, to look and make them as efficient as we can. Now we have to face the ETS, and I would say there's going to be significant um, interest or significant opportunities to look at how we can optimize further. But right now, we still face a lot of uncertainty around the implementation of the ETS. There's a lot we're learning and we're having to learn around the mechanics of the situation, around how the regulation will be applied, how we have to set ourselves up for the financial aspects of transferring EUAs between the different entities. We have no clear identification of who our administering authorities are going to be yet. Um, 
frankly, I don't think we even understand who the owners of the ships are under the ETS definitions that have been put about. So there's a lot going on at the moment. And as you yourself know, because you sit in the same meetings that I do at the SSF and others, there's an awful lot going on that we're working on at the minute. So it's going to have an impact. And I think part of this is, you know, part of from my side is it's preparing for that and making sure we're ready or as ready as we can be. We are not able yet to define exactly what those impacts will be. We've got a good estimate of what the financial implications will be, should we continue to operate in the same way. But as we seek to look for alternative fuels, as we seek to reduce our fuel consumption, the whole verification process, though, is still very opaque. And I think there's a lot more work that needs to be done in this space. So hopefully that gives you a little bit of a broader overview of some of the challenges and where we where we stand. Absolutely, Tom. It's it's interesting what you mentioned about the verification requirement because that kind of jumps a little bit into what I was thinking about here as well about the reporting side of it. You mentioned the uncertainties that are still pertaining to the ETS because, as we know, the ETS we have the MRV, obviously, but the ETS is actually changing a lot of the aspects of the MRV, and that is actually still in the process of being shaped at the EU level. So, so um, how, how do you think about that bit? Uh, I mean, you mentioned the ESSF. Are, are we actually, uh, are we having an impact in the feedback that we are giving the reg- regulators here, or, or are we being just you know politely listened to and some things taken into account, but not really having that heft that we would like to have? It's a great question, Eric. You know, are we being listened to? Are we getting to influence? Are they listening to what our position is? I think I've been part of, we've been part of the SSF as a company, Carnival, and participating in the past through CLEAR and other organizations for some time. And I think for the first time, we're really seeing the ESSF being used as it should be. I actually believe they are listening to us. I think it's very clear that they're trying to there's, there's a massive amount of work still to be done. As we always say in any of these um, regulations, the devil is in the details. There's a lot of delegated acts that still need to be um, dealt, that still need to be defined. And as we start the process, at least we've got an, a dialogue going now with the regulator. For, and, and the challenge is, whereas before we would normally deal with DG Move and things would be relatively, yeah, we know how to we know how to work together there. We're dealing with DG Klima and other areas where they've already got a lot of experience and they have a vision of how the ETS should work. But that's from point sources and from stationary uh, plant. We're talking about ships and massive numbers of ships that are operating maybe in some cases only for a very short period of time within the EU. So there's a lot of issues that still need to be resolved. But to answer your question, I do think they're listening to us. I think they've begun to understand. And I think the last meeting we attended was an actually interesting to see that they'd actually taken on board quite a lot of the feedback that they'd received. I still think there's a long way to go, though. And I particularly think the verification process, which probably speaks more to the class societies than it does to the operators, is an area where there's a massive amount of work that still needs to be done. Because it's still not clear to me, and I and I think at the last meeting, one of the comment, one of the other colleagues from one of the other associations mentioned, he's been in the industry for more than forty years, and he still can't clearly define what a ship owner is or who a ship owner is, because of the annoyances that there are within our industry. You know, the fantastic industry that we're in has some very uh, different aspects to others. That being said, I think we're getting there, but it, there's still a, there's still a way to go. 
Yeah, I, I, I would hardly share that uh, that that assessment, Tom. It's uh, uh, we do, we do have a, we do have some ways to go on getting that clarity. And uh, uh, what concerns me, of course, is that uh, time is short. Twenty twenty four is uh, skipping a hop away, so uh, it's uh, it's pretty close. But uh, so, so if I might come back, Eric, there is not just clearly one other thing I would also add is that there's 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 also a wish to align as much as they can with Fulu Maritime which of course is not completely finalized yet and is a, I won't I, I don't know what's holding it up because we'd expected by now to have the the text the regulatory regulatory text agreed so there's clearly a wish to align as much as possible and that makes it even more challenging for us to understand when there's not yet clarity on the regulation that they're trying to align with so I think that's one of those things I I see a very busy summer ahead of us a very busy summer ahead of us yeah, I think you're quite right. I mean, the holiday is going to be different from other years, that's for sure. Um, as you mentioned, uh, since you mentioned the fuel EU, um, we have eight secondary pieces of legislation in the ETS, 15, I believe, in the fuel EU, so 23 secondary pieces all being put together. So, uh, but it's, this is not just about regulations, obviously. At the, the end of the day, this is also about fostering um, uh, essentially emission reductions, uh, eventually eliminations. Um, energy efficiency has been the part that's been focused on for the last decade, I would say. That's where the regulatory drivers have been going. What that means, of course, is that many cruise vessels in particular are really very much optimized already when it comes to energy efficiency. And do you see an additional scope here for you guys in, in, in the cruise industry? Will you be, do you have playbooks still that, that haven't been played yet? Uh, do we still have a playbook that hasn't been played? I think there are some areas where, yes, you can answer. So so if I take a look at, you know, Carnival, we have 94 ships. We have ships age, ranging in age from a few months old to 25 years old throughout the fleet, although the older ships have probably had more optimization done on them than most have. But there's always opportunities. We have one clear opportunity, which is to look at the speed of operation, the number of days you're sailing versus the time you have in port. That has a big impact. We've got more and more shore power coming on stream. But from a pure operational and energy efficiency perspective, if we look at the technical side, I think there are still some things. You know, we're beginning to, you know, we've implemented things like hull air lubrication on a number of ships, both at the new build, but also retrofitting that on our vessels, which can give you some very significant energy savings. There's the whole, you know, you know, you'll heard it before from others, the LED lighting, the variable frequency drives. There's a massive amount of work that's already been done, but there still is areas where there are more opportunities. And, you know, there's always new people coming along or new designers, new philosophies or new equipment coming along that we can be that we can take a look at. So I don't think we'll ever get to the end. But the law of diminishing returns also applies. You know, you can, there are things that you can do which can give you a 10% reduction. Those don't exist anymore. We've probably dealt with most of those. I guess it's also worth mentioning that uh, lots of these regulations will, of course, drive up the cost of emissions, which also will make technologies more, um, well, te- they'll make technologies useful or cost efficient that were not cost efficient before. Uh, and that's part of the intent behind the reg- regulations here, of course. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. So, you know, obviously we're businesses. We have a job to do to, you know, to 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 run our ships profitably. And part of that will be then looking at the cost, the cost benefit analysis as you begin to uh, make those decisions. 
And clearly, as the price goes up for fuel or the price for carbon gets added on top, then that changes that 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 equation in the business case. And as you said, some things which may have been in the past not not cost effective might might now be cost effective. Hmm. In in addition, you know, as technology moves on, as you get more experience, the prices tend to drop. But one thing I would say is that in this decarbonization pathway, energy efficiency is always going to be a key component because, as you said, the prices of fuel are going to go up. The cost of carbon is increasing. We see that within the ETS. And so, therefore, there's going to be an incentive always to focus on energy efficiency. And that's clearly a, a major focus for our sector. You know, we, we look to see that each new design is more efficient than the last. And we look to see that every time, you know, whether it's through hull cleaning, through operational practices of, of where you route the ships, how you look at the routing. We do an awful lot of data analysis to try and understand how we can operate those ships more efficiently and more effectively. Avoiding run, running time at low load, trying to optimize your loads, fitting battery packs, etc. There's lots of things that can be done, which will help in the overall pathway towards decarbonization. Yeah. Well, there, there is. We, have, we still have some uh, tools that we haven't used uh, in the industry. That, that's that's for sure. Um, now, when we look, when we lift our gaze a little bit. Um, we, you know, we see that the ETS, of course, isn't the only greenhouse gas regulation on the books. <laughs> Far from it. You know, we have the existing and incoming future IMO regulations. You alluded to the CIR already. Fuel EV Maritime, which you mentioned, and also, of course, who knows what kind of local regulations we'll get that will keep continue to pop up. Um, now. How, how do you navigate the regulatory landscape? How do you think about all of these things interacting? Because my, one of the things that I tend to think about is, does all of this pull in the same direction? Are these regulations working at cross-purposes at times? And what can be done about that if that's the case? Eric, you know, it's a great question. You know, Are they all pulling in the same direction? At a high level, I think everybody is trying to do the same thing. We're all trying to decarbonize our sector. We're all looking at how we can decarbonize. And we've all got goals, whether it's an aspiration to be net carbon neutral operations by 2050, like we've got, whether it's the IMO strategy as it is today or might be in a couple of weeks' time towards a net zero in 2050 as well. So everything is pulling. The intent is they're all trying to pull in the same direction. But we've seen a very, you know, I think the CII is a classic example of where we have a regulation with the best of intent that is actually has some perverse incentives and is not working for certain sectors. We certainly don't see it working in the cruise sector. And as you know, we've been working on an alternative metric. And clearly there are times when that could force you to actually to get your emissions intensity rate down to actually increase your absolute emissions, which mm. would be directly opposed to where the ETS is trying to drive you. Because the ETS looks at your total volume of emissions and you then pay a penalty or you, you, you have to reduce to a certain timeline over the next three years our emissions. And, that, and so therefore you, you could improve your CII while at the same time increasing your emissions. And that people say, how can that be? Well, it's relatively straightforward. It's all about how ships operate and where you are on your power speed curve, how long you spend in port, how much time you're spending at sea and what distance you travel. So for sectors like ours, where you spend a lot of time in port and you don't, you're not doing long transatlantic, trans-Pacific voyages, the CII is not necessarily the best metric that we have. So there are examples where they're pulling in different directions. 
So, so what can we do about it, and how do we interact with the regulators as 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 a commercial sector? So clearly, we have opportunities through our membership of associations like the Cruise Lines International Association, which has a voice at the IMO. It doesn't have a vote, but it has a voice at the IMO. We've got great relationships with our national shipping associations. We work with our class societies and various other entities to make sure that our voice is heard and that we try to get across the concerns that we have. And as you said, Eric, as you referenced before, when it comes to the European um, Commission, we do have the ESSF, the European Sustainable Shipping Forum, which, as I said, as I said before, I think is now really looking to use that opportunity to discuss things in more detail. And hopefully, as we said, they'll take they'll listen to what we're saying. And so therefore, that can be those 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 things can come across. And of course, we have the opportunity through mediums such as this and others to put our view across. So we do our best. And then we also have to, and then of course, we have a whole team within our company, at least, that trawls the regulatory airwaves, the regulatory documentation to understand what's coming and what's happening. Because at the end of the day, we have to be compliant with these rules and requirements. We have the CII in force at the moment. There isn't an enforcement regime yet, but we still have to report. So we've all had to produce our SEMPs, our different documents, and make sure they're ready. And so we work very closely with the class societies like DMV, like Lloyd's and others to ensure that we have that information at our fingertips. So, yeah, it's a big effort, though, today in particular. And as you said, you you don't just have the IMO and the Europe. There are certainly some countries that are looking at local legislation that will referred not just to other air emissions but to decarbonization in the future and that's that's a challenge when they're not always aligned yeah i know what you're talking about there i'm i'm, I'm sitting in one of those countries so uh we, we, we do see I, 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 wasn't, I wasn't going to mention norway <laughs> uh, that's perfectly fine we have we have a good dialogue with uh, with authorities and we all i think we all talk, put our views across as well so uh, and, and i think your point is the right thing there i mean we we have to try to use the levers we have to try to make sure that we get uh, as things as aligned as possible and so that they all pulls in the same direction now but but when we, when we lift our gaze you know and look at the uh, greenhouse gas regulations in in in, in general maybe the, the key target i would say is eventual full decarbonization of shipping we can argue the date we can argue the methods and so on um but potentially as soon as 2050 now, when, when you think about the timelines for technology development, when you think about the lifetime of a cruise ship, for instance, is it doable? And, you know, I'm asking you to you know, polish your crystal ball and give me that steely, that steely gaze. Um, what will it take to actually fully decarbonize uh, shipping in general, maybe, but specifically cruise? That's a great question, Eric. What, what will it take? Can we do it? I'm an optimist. We can. I'm sure we can do it, but we can't do it alone. And and what does fully decarbonize mean? You know, at the moment, if we look at all of the fuels that we're looking at, they all have residual emissions from a carbon perspective or a greenhouse gas perspective. There's nothing that is really truly zero out there, with the possible exception of nuclear, and then it depends upon how you measure it. But clearly, there's a there's there's major challenges. The technology readiness level that we see in some of the technologies tends to be shifting to the right at the moment. It's not keeping. You know, we'd all expected to have 
fuel cells being more commercially available today than they than they really are, and other technologies that are being uh, pursued or being purported to be the answer to this um, uh, conundrum that we have. But really, it's going to be, you know, fuel is the key component to this at the end of the day. We need, you know, we can do as much as we can to reduce the unit of consumption to move us through the water by a certain distance or to provide the amount of power that we need to do something. But you can't reach zero through energy saving. You have to have a new energy source that is low carbon or zero carbon. And that's the real challenge at the moment, and we have to work with the we have to work with the suppliers. We have to work with the fuel producers to guarantee that these alternative fuels are going to be available there. Now, whether that's hydrogen derived fuels, whether it's methane, whether it's methanol, um, whether it's a bio drop in fuels, there are lots of opportunities there. But there's a massive amount of conflict at the present time, I would say, around what that fuel availability is going to be. Is it scalable? Is it sustainable? Is it affordable? Are we in conflict with other sectors as well? In the past, as a marine space, we've always been, you know, the place where the bottom of the barrel, the the alternative fuels go to and we can use. Now we're in competition with mainstream as well. And that that's, that's a very different place to be in. Now, and only by working together can we actually uh, achieve those aims and goals. And that means we've got to work closely with all the stakeholders in the supply chain, not just with ourselves as ship owners, which in the past has proven to be challenging. But if I look in the cruise segment, you know, you know we've made significant investments in LNG. That's clear. We believe LNG is a good pathway towards decarbonization. It's one of the it's one of those pathways, and we see the e-methane as as an end result, but with biomethane coming in the middle of that, in between. But there are also other fuels that we need. We need those drop-in biofuels. We need to work with suppliers to understand how those can be developed, and then we need a regulatory approach which allows us to do that in the least cost way. By which I mean not put additional barriers in place to make it more difficult to do things but to think a little bit outside the box to come up with regulatory regimes which actually incentivize the uptake and the early uptake of these alternative fuels. Yeah, I, I think you're pointing to, there's so many points and elements there we, we could dig, dig further into, but I, I think one of the key ones I would take away there is that the, the sheer complexity of achieving the goal is uh, it's staggeringly huge uh, compared with the complexity of the more traditional um, the regulatory implications of we've been dealing with uh, with previously uh, so um, collaboration definitely we are going to need collaboration across industries uh, at a much greater level and much more strategically than what we've seen previously so i, I think that's a fundamental change for us as an industry to be honest uh, I, I guess we're running out of time here, Tom, but um, before we round off, I, I'd like to ask you one last question. Uh, think of this as your Christmas wish question. <laughs> um, if you could ask the regulators for anything you wanted, what would actually be at the top of your wish list? That's a great question. There's there's quite a few things I could put on that list, but if it's just one you're really looking for, I suppose I'd say a level playing field regulatory certainty, regulatory clarity. You know, I, I th- you mentioned it before. We, we see at the moment this very, very diverse set of requirements. I think we're beginning to see some of that appearing. You know, there seems to be some movement to, uh, or 
movement, alignment, shall we say, in certain philosophies around, you know, fuel standards or, you know, around a greenhouse gas fuel standard and the like. Yeah, but clearly we need that. And I think the other thing is then going to be, you know, the certification regimes that come with it, you know, but I think, I think it's got to be, you know, regulatory certainty and the IMO supremacy, you know, we need to see just one level playing field for this because, Without that, it's going to prove, it, it is already proving to be challenging. And it puts pressure on operators to make decisions that may not be in the best interests, you know, of their of their overall um, business. You know, to, you'll have to make regional decisions. We already have to make regional decisions, clearly. The cruise, cruise industry is, is quite seasonal in some respects. But if you've got an area which has got much more draconian requirements and if you can't pass on those costs, then you're going to have to start thinking about how and where you operate. So a level a level playing field from my perspective would be what I would ask for. You know, at the end of the day, we're all trying to achieve the same thing and that's decarbonization. And to do that, we need a level playing field. I'll, uh, I'll make a note and put that in my wish list for Christmas at all, Tom. I think we, uh, we're, we're both on the same page there. Uh, listen, it's, it's, been, it's been great having you uh, on the podcast. I'm so happy that you could take uh, the time out and uh, talk, talk to us about this. Um, uh, and, uh, well, we'll be meeting again in the very near future, I'm sure, and we'll be able to follow up bilaterally, at least, even if there won't be an audience. So, again, thank you very much for joining us, Tom. We really appreciate it. And, Eric, thank you very much. It's always great to talk to you. It's always great to get your view and to have that opportunity to uh, discuss and debate some of the more challenging items that we're facing in our industry today. Thank you for joining us for this episode. You've been listening to the Maritime Impact Podcast from DNV with me, Eric Nyhus. We will take a very short break and we'll be back after the long-awaited MPC 80 meeting to summarize all the important decisions and their impact on shipping. To catch up on what to expect from MPC 80, check out our previous podcast episodes covering former MPC meetings and our conversations with Svein Oftedal, the chairman of the Greenhouse Gas Working Group at IMO. If you enjoyed the episode, please don't forget to give us a rating or a review. Thank you for listening.